0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. It's good to be back. Uh, we just returned from Dallas. We were at a, an assembly for the whole Anglican church in North America. There were about 1,500 folks involved, volunteers teenagers, adults, attendees, international guests. It was really great. It was the 10th anniversary of the Anglican Church, so there's a lot of celebration going on. But uh, I got to meet Ravi Zacharias, and my knees went weak. <laughs> it was like I just met the Godfather or something like that. And uh, Trip got to hang out with him and uh, got to enjoy more conversation with him. But just the, being in the presence of someone who has this amazing ministry and worldwide reputation, was was really uh, staggering to just meet him. So um, we got back and are ready to go. Great summer for us to look into what we call ordinary time, a chance to look at the ways in which we grow as Christians. And I think there's often this uh, this kind of polarity. Here it is. The polarity is... Um, I come to Jesus, this is great celebration, and then my goal in life is just to wait for him to come back and I'm not sure what to do with the in-between. And I think the church has really not done a great job of teaching the in-between, or even what uh, N.T. Wright, if you know his name, the famous theologian says, after you believe. What happens after you believe before Jesus returns? So ordinary time has us take a look at what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple. And how do we grow? Think about this. How are you growing in your Christian life? How are you progressing? What's happening in your life that's causing you to be formed and shaped more into the image of Jesus? This passage today in Luke chapter 9, which is called the Confession of Jesus, is a great passage to consider this. Um, Often the the battle about this passage goes upon Peter's confession. Uh, Some traditions would say Peter's confession meant that that tradition that follows Peter as the first leader, the first follower, the first bishop, means there's some primacy around Peter. Um, Other traditions would say, no, it's actually this confession that Peter gave in his heart, this call to faith. That's what I tend to... To believe, but today's passage helps us see some important themes. Here they are to start off with. First of all, Peter's confession and our look at it reveals who's really in charge? Who's really in charge of your life? Secondly, how do you know what's true in this world? How do you know what's true, what's false? And third, does someone really, truly, deeply care about me or you? So we're going to look at that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, which is truth and teaches us what it means to know you and to follow you and helps us be guarded into it, tutored into it, that we may see the Lord Jesus Christ for all he is, just as Peter saw that and confessed that. I pray today. You'd give us the grace to learn what it means to be a disciple, to follow you with our whole lives, even to lose our lives so that they may be found in you. And I pray that you would teach us these great truths so our lives might reflect the character, the virtue, the goodness of Jesus. And I pray this in his mighty name. Amen. Okay, so let me give you sort of a framework to understand this passage today. First of all, we'll see a very simple question, we will see a very profound answer, and then a serious invitation. Very simple question, a very profound answer, and then a simple invitation for us, a serious invitation. So the first one, a simple question. Jesus asked Peter, who do the crowds say that I am? Um, This is Luke 9, so if you you just think chronologically, this is far into Jesus' ministry. He's been around with the disciples for a while. They've been following him, they've been watching him, they've been walking with him. And he asks them, what do the people say about me? There's murmurs going on. They have to have some understanding, some impression of who I am. What are they saying? And Peter says, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, resurrected. Or maybe you're Elijah, you're the promised return of this great prophet Elijah, you've come back on the scene, or some other great prophet from the Old Testament, we really don't know who you are. And Jesus takes those speculations and he turns it to, to a very personal question to Peter. He says, and what about you? Who do you say that I am? You know, I have learned um, in small groups, in chit-chat, I'm not great at chit-chat. I'm ADD, so I, uh, I'm just not good at sitting around talking about the weather or sports or stuff like that. But I've had to learn how to use conversation starters like this. Tell me something exciting that's going on in your life, right? Uh, what are you celebrating? What are you mourning What's your story? You know, ways to get at what's going on in people's lives. So when we ask questions, we're asking questions of people to discover more about them. But I want you to see here, when Jesus asks a question, he is asking that question so you discover more about him. This is the question he asks of Peter. Peter I hear the speculations going on, but what about you? Imagine if he was standing before you today and he asked that question. Who would you say that I am? Peter has been watching his words, his message, his deeds. He's watched Jesus heal people, raise them. He's watched these miracles And he's made up his mind. You're a prophet. You're like John the Baptist. You're like Elijah. You're like Moses. Because Peter knew before God would act in redeeming his people, he would send a great prophet. But his response is pretty amazing. He says a very profound answer. You are the Messiah. Now, that word is a powerful word. It's from the Hebrew and Greek. Masiach is the Hebrew word. Greek is Christos. It means the anointed one. It doesn't necessarily mean rescuer. It means more savior. It's the anointed one. In the ancient Near East, if someone was raised to a great office, they would be anointed with oil. And you might ask, why oil? What was so special about oil? Well, first of all, it's precious. And it, it, it um, exemplified these three powerful qualities. With oil, that was the ancient way of providing ointment and salve to heal your wounds. Oil had a healing dimension to it. Oil was also to preserve things. It preserved things. And lastly, oil was what you used to have light. So a person raised to a great office would be anointed with oil. Christos means the anointed one. When Peter says, you are the Messiah, he's saying, you're one who has been raised and anointed for a great office to do something for God's people. And Jesus acknowledges it. But here's what I want you to see. Peter's confession of Jesus was limited. There were three roles in Israel that whenever someone was raised up, they were anointed. They were the prophets, the priests, and the kings. Anytime one of those offices was raised up in Israel, they would anoint that person with oil. The best Peter could see was Jesus was a prophet. He didn't have the full view of who Jesus is. He didn't know Colossians 1 yet. It hadn't been written. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He probably didn't understand at Jesus' birth, Herod, knowing a prophecy about a future king, killed all the young babies in Nazareth. He didn't know this. He probably hadn't seen Jesus... Well, we know he hadn't. He, he hadn't yet seen Jesus stand before Pontius Pilate and say, my kingdom is not of this world. He hadn't yet seen Jesus on the cross with the letters I-N-R-I, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And he hadn't witnessed his glorious return of Jesus triumphantly. He didn't yet see Jesus as king. He saw him as prophet. ...but not king. And he hadn't seen him yet as priest. He hadn't seen Jesus... ...explain at the Passover meal... ...this bread is my body... ...and it's going to be broken for you. This wine is my blood. It's going to be spilled for you. And he hadn't yet seen Jesus resurrected. So when when Peter confesses who Jesus is... ...his confession is limited. I see you as this great prophet... What about you, friends? Who do you say that he is? As a freshman in college, I grew up very marginally Christian. My family stopped attending church when I was probably about 11. I had a Christianized worldview. I had this idea there was God, there was this person of Jesus. He was really special. I didn't understand why. And I was supposed to be nice to everyone I met. That was kind of my understanding of what it meant to be a Christian. It was my Christianized minor worldview. God, Jesus, don't really understand who he is. Be nice to everyone. God is watching. That was how I was striving to live my life. As I met Jesus personally, I had to answer this question. Who is he really? And what am I going to do about him? Just as Peter is addressed this. So let me ask you these things. Is Jesus your king? Is he the king over your life? What about you? Who do you say that he is? Is he your king? Then all allegiances, including to yourself, are secondary to him. Political heroes, achievements, family, aspirations, all of these things are secondary to who Jesus is. We live in a culture desperately in need of a hero. That's why in the last 18 years, Americans have paid $20 billion, $20 billion to watch Marvel comic movies true. We're starving for a hero. Um, You know, and I think they've provided us certainly 18 years of entertainment, but here's the thing about Marvel Comics. Spoiler alert, Iron Man dies. He dies. If they resurrect Iron Man in the next movie, you'll know they're copying the Christian story. We're in search of a hero. We're in search of a leader, a king. Is Jesus your king? Are all your allegiances, all your plans and agendas secondary to him and his kingdom? This is what the Messiah would do. Secondly, is he your high priest? Does he get you to God? Or more important, to God the Father. Your relationship to God comes through the Son, Jesus like a high priest. Jesus says in John 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. If you want to know the Father, you go through Jesus. You don't go through religious practices or activities. You go through the person of Jesus, which is why when we pray, we could pray in many ways, but when we pray, Typically, the way to close a prayer is to say, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why? Because the way you get to God is through the Son. Philip asked Jesus in John chapter 14, a very great question. He says, Jesus, could you just show us God the Father? Could you just show us the Father? And Jesus says to Philip, Philip, you've been with me for years Don't you know if you are looking at me, you're looking at the Father. If you see me, you see the Father. He says in another place in John, the Father and I are one. Is Jesus your king? If he is, then you get to the Father and you get to know God. The, the third piece, second piece of this is, in Israel, the high priest would often represent the people before God. The priest would stand on their behalf. Listen to the writer of the book of Hebrews. This is what the writer says in Hebrews 9. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands like a priest would do. That was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. ...now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again... ...the way a high priest would do. The way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood... ...that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times... ...since the creation of this world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages... To do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of the many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin. But to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is what Peter and his his people understood clearly. Every year, a high priest would stand before the people of God and offer sacrifices. And those sacrifices would be sacrifices made in blood to cover the sins for the people. And that priest would have to do that year after year every year until Jesus has come. And his life is the full perfect, sufficient sacrifice for the people of God. He's the great high priest. So when Peter says, Messiah, what Jesus teaches him is that I am not only a prophet, I am a priest and I am a king. If Jesus is your great prophet, then he speaks the will of the Father to you. Matthew 28 says, Teach the people to obey everything that I've told you. And Jesus is truth. Do you obey his words? This is the great prophetic role he plays. So now we move to the last part, this very serious invitation. You know, when I was a young Christian, I thought Christianity was kind of like this. You come to Jesus, and it's really great. It's exciting. It's wonderful. And then I heard people talk about dying. And I thought, that's kind of anticlimactic, right? I'm excited. It's joy. It's fun. It's freedom. It's all these things. And then you're telling me, now I'm supposed to die. That's not a winsome way to get people to come to Jesus. But it's actually what he does. He offers Peter a very serious invitation. But I want you to understand that Peter has been following Jesus. So his invitation was progressive in its effect. He started to Peter with this, come and see. Come and see what I'm doing. He didn't start with come and die. He started with come and see. Just come and watch what I'm doing. Come and listen to what I'm saying Come and see what I'm explaining. Then he transitioned with Peter and the disciples to come follow me. Come and listen to what I'm saying. Come and see it. And now I'm inviting you to follow me. And then in this confession here in Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, I want you to come and die with me. You see how his gracious and serious invitation progressively grows? It's come and see. It's come follow me. And then it's come and die. Now, you're probably sitting here still saying, yeah, but that die part, I like the come and see. I like the come and follow me. But the die part, I'm not really interested in the die part. No one wants to die. Everyone is geared towards a deep-seated call towards self-preservation, right? I don't want to die. I want to live. I want to experience. I want to have my own way. That's why two great movies recently illustrate this clearly. How many of you saw the movie Gravity with Sandra Bullock? Five of you. Great. Uh, This illustration is going to work well. How many of you saw The Martian with Matt Damon? Okay, thank you. All right, good. You understand humanity pushed to the extreme. It it doubles down and it says, I am going to live. That's the way our life works. I don't want to die. So when we hear Jesus' invitation, it's a little anachronistic. It's a little bit like... That is not what I thought the Christian life was to be. I thought the Christian life was to to grow and to experience freedom, not to come and die. And that's because we don't understand this phrase. Let me explain it. Jesus adds a twist. He says, if you truly want to live, you must die. If you want to save your life, you will actually need to lose it. The gospel is completely and absolutely a free offering. But to follow Jesus will cost you everything. Let me explain this a little bit more in depth. The fuel of our discipleship is anticipation. Anticipation for Jesus to be fully realized as our king, our priest, and our prophet, for him to come in fullness, for the kingdom to fully come on earth as it is in heaven, that activity is fueled by anticipation. We sang a song earlier about that, even so. Anticipation says this. If he is truly king, I can't wait to be a full citizen of his kingdom. If he's truly king, I can't wait for him to fully reign on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what I begin to shift my life and my passion and my agenda towards. I can't wait to see that become true. If he's truly my great high priest and his sacrifice has placed me into the throne room of God, then I can't wait to be fully known and face to face with God. I can't wait for that. And my life Is a life of anticipation for that to be true. If he's truly a prophet of God and his truth sets me free, then I want to hear what he has to say and I want to apply it to my life. That's anticipation. I can't wait for that to be a reality. My sophomore year, um, sorry, my freshman year in college, I had uh, become a Christian around January, Christmas time, early January, and I got involved in a Bible study, and the guy leading the Bible study actually lives in Chapel Hill, now he was from Oklahoma, and I was in Bible study with Lynn and Larry's son, and we were in a room uh, at the student center with this guy, there's two other folks, I can't remember them. I turned 50 in January, so the RAM doesn't work the way it used to, and so we're in this room, and uh, it's this dark corner of the student center at Oklahoma State University, and they have this chalkboard. I know half the room doesn't know what a chalkboard is. Well, (laughs) it's before they had these things, just trust me. Had this chalkboard, and we're sitting there, and we're talking about our summer plans, And the guy leading us, his name's Bill, gets up and he he goes to the chalkboard and we're kind of like, whoa, what's this? And he draws this long line. It's a huge chalkboard. It's probably about 15 feet long. And he draws this huge line from one side of it to the other, this big, long line. And on the end, he puts little arrows. So I've had enough mathematics to know that means that line is an eternal line. It's an infinite line. He draws this line and then he takes a colored piece of chalk and he circles in the middle of the line and he circles it. And he says, if this line is eternity and it's infinite and this is God's kingdom and he's telling this to a bunch of 19 year olds and this little dot this little dot represents your 60 your 70 your 80 if you're in good health, you're 90 years of life. That's your dot. Which one are you living for? you living for a dot or are you living for the line? And this is the power of anticipation for discipleship. I'm living for the line, not the dot. The dot goes very fast. And the older you get, the faster it goes. But I'm living for the line. That's the fuel of what it means to be a disciple. This is why C.S. Lewis once said it this way. Christianity, if it's false, it's of no importance. doesn't matter. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Here's the invitation. If you want to save your life, you must be willing to lose it to Jesus. He's calling us to lose our old way of living. My life, my goals, my agenda, my own comfort, my own preservation. He's calling me to lay those aside and lose them for his sake. Let me close with this. This morning, what about you and what about me? Who do you say that he is? How you answer this question says everything about you. It is the most important question placed before a man, a woman, or a child. It says everything about you, what you value, where you are going, what your purpose in this life is, and how you understand everything and everyone around you. In fact, it is so important that all other life questions pale in comparison to this one. Who do you say that I am? Now, I like a lot of eclectic music, and I do like classical music. I have it on my iPad, iPod. I play it in my iPhone, whatever device it is. Um, I'm old. Um, I play it in my car, and I particularly like Handel's Messiah. George Friedrich Handel, by 1737, was completely bankrupt. This is a man who had written 40-some operas based upon Italian oratory. He was, he was world famous, but by 1737, he was completely bankrupt, destitute, an utter failure, and he was the laughing stock in Britain. They made fun of him in the press. He was a German immigrant to England In 1741, a man named Charles Jennings, who was a devout follower of Jesus, working from his King James Bible, the Psalter, which is the book of Psalms in the prayer book, and the book of common prayer in the Anglican Church, put together a script. And he wanted Handel to produce it into a famous work. And he sent it to him. Initially, Handel uh, said, no thanks, um, I'm done, I'm hanging it up and eventually he came around to see it was an opportunity. In 25 days, he wrote 260 pages of musical masterpiece. It was first performed in Dublin, Ireland on the 13th of April, 1742, and it received its London premiere nearly a year later. It took years for it to take hold, but it is still played year after year. It's actually more... prolific in the English and non-English-speaking world than things like Hamilton and Les Mis. (laughs) Of all the things that Handel tried in this life, the Messiah, this work, has been the greatest. Let me close with this quote. The author, Charles Jennings, wrote about the script. He said, I hope Handel will lay out his whole genius and skill upon it, that the composition of it may excel all his former compositions. Listen to this. As the subject excels every other subject. The subject is the Messiah. The subject excels every other subject. Friends, this morning, who do you say that he is? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.